Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Well, we need to get in fellowship. I need to get... See, this is trouble. We have a conference where we take all our stuff somewhere and other people play with my stuff. And it takes me weeks to get everything back the way I like it. So... That's what happened, so. Anyway, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then uh, we'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that we can be here tonight. We thank you that we have the a privilege to study your word that, that down through the ages as you revealed yourself and then as you worked through uh, various scribes and copyists down through the centuries to preserve your word, today we have uh, accurate rendition of your revelation that we can go to for absolute truth. We study the things we look at tonight. We pray that you'd help us to see how uh, the church age fits within the scope of your uh, plans within the Old Testament, and what Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, is doing at the right hand of the Father today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we just returned from the 2007 pre-trib conference for the pre-trib study group up in up in Dallas, and some of you have never been, and it is... Uh, if you can get away, it's a great thing to do because you get to uh, really become exposed to some of the uh, some great Bible teachers and scholars and expositors. And, <clears throat> of course, we go up there every year and go up there with um, the, the team puts takes everything apart here, takes the projectors and the sound equipment and the DVD, the video and everything. We haul everything up there and set it up and video the entire conference for uh, the Pre-Trib Research Center. And then uh, they take care of distribution and other things uh, later on. But we uh, take care of that for them. There were about 400 or 450 people registered for the conference this year. The conference started back in the early 90s, and it was a vision of uh, Tim LaHaye and Tommy and uh, a few others to have a group of scholars that would get together on an annual basis to do to present papers and do in-depth research on particular problems and issues related to uh, dispensationalism, uh, eschatology, pre-trib rapture, these kinds of things. And first year they started, they had about 35 that showed up, 
And for a number of years, up until about 2000 or 2001, it was just primarily seminary professors, pastors, uh, Bible college professors, uh, some seminary students who were who were coming. And then uh, Tim LaHaye got a great idea, which was to make it available. I got more problems with my stuff here. Yeah, okay. Made it available for open it up to non-professionals to attend and observe, and that has really been great because we still have probably the same number of uh, scholars and seminary professors and others show up, but there's a lot of other people that show up. This year we had a debate. First time I think there's been a debate, at least that, that since I've been going, and it was a debate between uh, Hank Hanegraaff who was a successor to Walter Martin as the head of uh, Christian Research Institute, which is a cult investigation uh, ministry that Walter Martin had founded. And he has taken it in some directions that were not true of Dr. Martin. And he's also moved the ministry from California to uh, North Carolina. And he was, <clears throat> he has shifted in his views on prophecy and other things to a preterist even though he says he's not a preterist, I kept wanting to say, well, if you walk like a duck and quack like a duck and fly like a duck, you're a duck. But he claims he's not a preterist. He claims he's an exegetical eschatologist. And at the end of the debate, those who were there raised the question if he understood the meaning of either exegesis or eschatology. He probably understands eschatology, but not when they go together. And he debated uh, Dr. Mark Hitchcock. Mark is a now an adjunct professor at Dallas Seminary, just finished his Ph.D. work at Dallas Seminary, and he wrote his doctoral dissertation on the date of the book of Revelation. And that was really the theme of the conference this year was the book of Revelation. And so uh, there was a debate that was uh, on Monday night. And these are good from the vantage point that it helps many people who never hear or read what somebody else in an opposing viewpoint uh, says or how they articulate their position to sit there and listen to them articulate their position and to see how rational or irrational it might sound. And there were a number of <coughs> folks that made comments about how irrational uh, Hanegraaff sounded in terms of his, his position. But they did a great job. Mark Hitchcock did a great job. And uh, John Ankerberg filmed it. He, he had his whole crew there. And if you've never watched Anchor, the John Ankerberg show, I think that comes on the local TBS channel here, Channel 14. And uh, But it's pretty good. I think he graduated from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in Chicago. And it's typically a, a scenario where they have, uh, they'll have somebody who is an expert in apologetics or a particular cult or something of that nature, and then they'll have a, some somebody from Jehovah's Witnesses, and they'll have a debate. He'll film the whole debate and then 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 show it over ten parts or fifteen parts or something like that. And those kinds of things have value because it helps people see a, a, a somebody from a cult from a uh, different position, usually a non-Christian, Buddhist, New Age, atheist, evolutionist. Somebody like that try to present their opinion, their their views, while they're being challenged by somebody who is a specialist in that area from a Christian viewpoint. 
So Ankerberg was there with all his stuff, and so they're going to chop the debate up. It really, most of us thought that it was too long. Because there's only about eight key points of contention, and they just kept going over and over and over them, and uh, so that got a little boring after three hours, and I sat on the front row because Tommy had Charlie and me vet all the questions that people handed in. We didn't get to even take a break, and they had a big Klieg lights going, and so it was hot down on that front row. So we, we um, uh, but when they show this, they're going to show it on TV January 21st, and they're going to chop it all up, and it'll be probably <clears throat> a rather short version of it. And uh, Mark Hitchcock handled himself as a professional, as a grace-oriented gentleman, and Hannah Graff did not. That's all I'll say about that. And uh, it was a good conference. Like I said, the focus was on Revelation, so the, the first... And, and Tommy tried to run it sort of in a, in a in a certain order from broad perspective to narrow and chronological order. And the first guy up was a guy named Dr. David Larson. And Dr. Larson is a professor in homiletics at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And he's written three or four books on the whole issue of prophecy and, and eschatology. It's very interesting. He has a very thick 750-page history of the study of prophecy going back all the way to the early church and tracing it all the way through uh, through history called the Company of Hope, which is very interesting. He has another book on Israel, the church, and prophecy, which is also excellent. And I read that about 15 years ago, and he's done a great job there. But to hear him is is just that, something you, you need to do. Everybody who's gone is laughing and chuckling and nodding their head if you don't see it. Because he, he's sort of a, he's a train, you'd think he's a trained actor. And he's the only person that I know who can read, he could read the phone book and probably make you weep or cry or laugh, uh, just with his abilities to do that. And he has a droll wit. And he makes these side comments when somebody says something that isn't quite right. He would comment on that naughty boy or that rapscallion. And at one point, one of the men who had, was presenting a paper on the new heavens and the new earth made some comment that most of us from this church would not have agreed with at all. And uh, there was two guys there, Clay Ward and David Rosen, were sitting right behind, um, right behind Dr. Larson. And Dr. Larson was sitting next to Dave Hawking. And when this guy made this statement, he... Larson turned to Hawking and went, oh, dear. <laughs> so he was just, uh, he was interesting. He had a great paper, though, on the history of the interpretation of Revelation. And that was followed up by another fabulous paper by uh, Andy Woods. Andy was a lawyer and trial lawyer, and then he did his first year at seminary, Chafer Seminary, and then he went to Dallas, and he's finishing up his doctorate and working on his dissertation now. And he did a paper on arguing for the futurist interpretation of Revelation, which is, of course, our view. And that is where the battle is today. Is Revelation in the future, or is it something that's already occurred? And he did a fabulous job. And in that, that afternoon, David Hawking talked about the rapture in the book of Revelation. And what he said that was good, which was most of it, is not something that hasn't already been taught in much more detail from this pulpit. Then um, my paper was late Monday afternoon in the sleeper slot when the carbs hit everybody. And then uh, that night was the debate. Tuesday we started off with uh, 
some guy from Master Seminary who was dealing with the whole issue of the market uh, of how the the beast takes the head wound and the possibilities there and everything. And I missed that because uh, Charlie Clough and George Meisinger and I were having a uh, meeting on Chafer Seminary business. And then I forget who was. Oh, after him was was Doctor John Whitcomb, who of the Whitcomb and Morris fame, right, the writers of the Genesis Flood, and he's 82. Wonderful years old, and he is very articulate, has a fabulous voice still, and uh, I'm not sure. I don't know enough about what he was studying, what he was presenting on, to know if I agree with him or not, but he gave me a lot of great resources, so that was good. And when we get into some of those issues, I'll work my way through a lot of it. But that was great. That afternoon, there was a guy who presented the one on the New Heavens and New Earth, which was, uh, he hasn't been one of my favorite presenters over the years and then who was the last guy that afternoon? Was uh, oh, that was Ron Bogaki. What did he do his paper on, Dan? Uh, he did the, uh, the oh yeah, that's right. He was dealing with the Olivet discourse and the, the Olivet discourse and Re- Revelation, and that would be quite good. He cut like thirty-five pages out of his paper, so <laughs> he did pretty good. And then uh, Arnold taught the Wednesday morning on. Uh, Old Testament imagery, pointing out that there aren't any direct quotes from the Old Testament in Revelation, but there are uh, at least 550 allusions to Old Testament uh, passages and, and elements and prophecies in the book of Revelation. And he went through that, and that was very good. And then the last paper was one that Dr. Nemo gave here at the Schaefer Conference uh, a year ago on the uh, identity of the 24 elders at the in Revelation chapter 5, which we've also gone through here, and that was that was quite well done. So that was the that was the conference, and uh, some of those papers will be available on the pre-trib website. So that's always a great thing to do. And of course, Dr. Fruchtenbaum will be here. Everybody was quite excited about this that he would be here for three weeks in January to teach his life of Jesus from a Jewish perspective. And I just want to continue to kind of make this point that there are times when we'll have guest speakers here that we will always treat with grace. They may differ with me on a point of interpretation here or there or what you've heard in the past, and that's fine. That's how people learn to think through issues. They hear somebody else that's a respected scholar say, well, I don't believe in X, and you've always heard X was right, and then you have to go learn how to think through the issue and think about it and say, well, what are the what are the arguments behind? That's how you learn how to think. And so um, <clears throat> there's a few little idiosyncrasies to Arnold's uh, Arnold's theology that uh, haven't been able to disabuse him of yet. And uh, the when I the reason I point that out is when I had him come up and speak on this same subject at Preston City Bible Church, somebody said, well, you know, he doesn't believe in X. I said, well, that's okay. You know, some people don't, but you do and I do, and that's all that matters. So let's not get all wrapped up around the axle. If you hear something wrong, just, well, that's just the way things are out there. None of us agree 100% on anything. In fact, I may not even agree a whole lot with what I taught 20 years ago. So we all grow, we all learn, and uh, there's that level of uh, <clears throat> of objectivity there. So that's uh, that gives you a little rundown on what we did, everybody had a great time. There are a tremendous number of representatives from pastors you know and from uh, Kendall Weeks was there. Kendall looked great. 
We have him on our prayer list. He's doing great. Gary Glenny from up there in Portland was there. Uh, he looked great. Of course, I already mentioned David Roseland and Clay Ward. And uh, Dan, of course, Pastor Dan Ingram from the National Capital Bible Church is uh, here tonight. And um, I know I'm leaving somebody out. Joe Martin was there. He's got a couple of new uh, DVDs. Uh, they're not called those incredible creatures. They're called something else, but it's the same kind of same kind of theme. And uh, he and his wife Jenity were there. And of course, Randy Price was there. And Randy does a did a little update on things that are going on in Israel uh, on Thursday night, and that was that was good. Randy just always does things very well. In fact, Aunt, uh, Randy finally got his schedule straightened out, and <clears throat> he will be added to the list of speakers at the Chafer Conference in, um, in March. So Randy definitely will, uh, will be here. So I think that kind of wraps it up, right? I didn't leave anything important out. Okay. Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8, and we're going to get into an introduction tonight of the New Covenant. Now this is, an, again, a very important topic in relationship to prophecy. All the biblical covenants have significance in terms of prophecy, significance in terms of Israel, and uh, therefore they're going to have significance in terms of understanding the distinctions between the church and Israel, especially since we get into our passage right here in Hebrews 8 as we've been going through the first uh, actually, we've covered the first six verses already, but we'll start with verse six tonight just to pick up the context. When we get into this, we see that the uh, introduction of this passage on the new covenant grows, it is organically connected to what is covered in the first six verses, which is that Jesus Christ is a superior high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. That was what was established in chapter 7. So that when we start talking about the new covenant in verse 7, the new covenant in verse 7 can't be, can't be separated from the present high priestly ministry of Christ at the right hand of the Father, which means that as we get into verse 6, But now he has obtained, he being the Lord Jesus Christ, he has obtained a more excellent ministry by as much as he is also the mediator of a better covenant. Now, if he's the mediator of a better covenant, and the better covenant is the new covenant in this context, and he's the mediator of this new covenant, then that's very important to understand that you can't mess with this in ways to try to invent other covenant, other new covenants. He's the mediator of a better covenant, which has been enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant, notice that's in italics because it's ellipsized in the Greek, but it obviously from context refers back to that first covenant being the Mosaic law. If that, that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second. For finding fault with them... He says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord. This is a a direct quote out of Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 and following, 
which explain, which is the key passage and the only passage in the Old Testament that uses the terminology new covenant. Now, my point here is that if the high priestly ministry is connected to the better covenant, and if Christ is the mediator of this better covenant, and the context says that this better covenant is with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, that last line, then that means that Jesus Christ's present high priestly ministry at the right hand of God the Father, his role as a high priest is directly related to a covenant with Israel. Now, that ought to make you scratch your head just a little bit because I think by understanding that and thinking about this a little bit, it's going to help us to understand uh, a lot of things related to what God is doing with the church and what God is doing with Israel. It's not saying that they're, they're, we're not going to break down the wall of separation between uh, Israel and the church, but we are seeing that this covenant with Israel, with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, is the foundational legal document enacted in human history that lays the foundation for what God is what God is doing and what Christ is doing as our high priest. And just to remind you something we've gone through quite a bit in the past, that, that from Genesis 1 to Revelation, everything that God does in history is, is based on some kind of legal structure. He has... Uh, theologians use the word condescended. What that basically means is that God has willingly limited and restricted himself, lowered himself in a sense, to work within certain structures which man can understand in order to carry on his relationship with man. It used to be that uh, I used to ha- I took a church in Irving many many years ago, and there were two or three guys in the church that were were really positive. But both of these guys had come out of some quasi mystical uh, slash charismatic background, and they would uh, frequently ask questions related to the continuation of the sign gifts. And the thing that you always heard, and I used to get I never of course I don't know that I'd be in an environment now where people would ask me the question, but I used to always get these questions from people who who were interested in the charismatic issue is and they would ultimately end up saying, well how can you put God in a box? God can make anything happen. God can still do miracles. God could give people the gift of tongues today if he wanted to. God could do all kinds of things if he wanted to. And you're just restricting him and saying, no, you've got it backwards here. What the Word of God does is God informs us how he's going to function in relation to, to man, what the bases are for his relationship to man, and what the conditions are for what he will do and what he will not do. It is God who has told us what those restrictions are. God has willingly restricted himself, and he has told us what those restrictions are. We're not putting God in a box. God has put himself in a box in order to let us know exactly what we can expect of him so that as you go through the different dispensations, from the dispensation of perfect environment or or innocence in the garden to human government to, uh, excuse me, to conscience, to human government, to uh, the calling out of the of Abraham and the uh, 
age of the patriarchs and then the age of Israel, then the messianic era and then the church age, tribulation all the way through. God, when God is going to change the way he deals with people, he articulates it in a legal document called the covenant. So this is just how he does things. So he says that this new covenant is going to be with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. But there are some really important issues that have developed over the years in trying to understand just what this new covenant is and how the church relates to the new covenant and in what sense, if any, are we seeing the new covenant fulfilled today. And there are those that have taken various positions, which we'll go into just so you can have an understanding of what that what, what, what's going on here historically. So we'll get into our introduction of the New Covenant tonight. First of all, the New Covenant is the eighth and final covenant in the Old Testament. We've had the initial creation covenant, the Adamic covenant, and the Noahic covenant. Those are all modifications of the same permanent covenant. And those are Gentile, those are universal covenants for all mankind. The Noahic Covenant is still in effect. Every time you see a rainbow, you're to be reminded of what? Yeah, I mean, haven't I taught you all better than that? You're to you'd be reminded that we have to execute criminals who commit murder. Oh, yeah, and God's not going to destroy the earth by water anymore either. <laughs> and you can still enjoy a good prime rib and good steak. All that, because all of that is part of the Noahic Covenant. All of it. You can't just... Pick out one one thing and say, well, we're going to ignore the other. So the Noahic Covenant is still in effect, and we still need to be executing criminals, and we still need to eat steak, and God's not going to wipe us out by water. And that includes water from the sky and, oh my, melted ice caps. Wouldn't that come into that same category? They could make the oceans rise and just flood everybody out. So that's not going to happen. We can just have confidence in that. So those are the first three covenants. And then we get into God saying, well, I'm tired of dealing with the whole human race. They have just rejected me and rejected me and rejected me and constantly worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And so I'm going to call out one individual. And God, from that point on, in approximately um, approximately 2000 to 2100 B.C., God says he is going to restrict himself to working primarily through the descendants of Abraham, specifically the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he gives Abraham a covenant that has three elements to it. And those elements are land, seed, and blessing. And the blessing part is what's integral and important to understanding the new covenant. So you have land, seed, and blessing, and that is a permanent covenant. And that's the fourth covenant, but it's the first Jewish covenant, and then you have the land covenant, sometimes called the Palestinian or real estate covenant, and that's the uh, fifth covenant and the second Jewish covenant. Then you have the Mosaic covenant, which is the, I'm going to lose track here, the seventh covenant, right? Sixth covenant. See, I can't count. Numbers are no good. I'm a liberal arts guy. Sixth covenant, and it's the, it's the, the land covenant, it's the second Jewish covenant, the Davidic covenant, is the third Jewish covenant and the seventh covenant, and the new covenant is the eighth and final covenant in the Old Testament, and the fifth 
Jewish covenant. The Mosaic covenant is the fourth covenant. Wait a minute. Mosaic covenant the fourth covenant comes in there. I probably screwed that up. Um, so the only temporary covenant in the Old Testament is the Mosaic covenant. We sometimes call it unconditional, but the key issue is it's temporary. And that's what Hebrews 8, 7 is all about. It was not to be a permanent covenant. So just some introductory concepts here. First of all, things. some of this is very familiar to some of you, some of it's not. First of all, a covenant is a legally binding obligation of God to man. These are the biblical covenants. A covenant is a legally binding obligation of God to man. God is committing himself to something, and the, one of the reasons we use that term unconditional is because he's not putting a condition on man to fulfill the obligation of the covenant. He is binding himself to fulfill the obligation of the covenant. He promises Abraham that he's going to give Abraham a land. He's going to give Abraham descendants that were, would be as countless as the stars of the sky and the sands uh, of the seashore. And yet there's still a condition in there that, that Abraham can never lose that title deed, but his descendants won't fully realize it and appreciate its blessing unless they're obedient. But it is a permanent, unconditional covenant in that God has sworn that he will never forsake that covenant. He's not going to go back on it. There will be a time when it is fulfilled and Israel has that, has that land. A second introductory principle, a covenant is God's solemn pledge. That's another word. We saw this back in the seventh chapter, the, the concept of pledge, God swore an oath. And so this indicates that, that this is something that is, uh, uh, has a legal basis to it. Uh, a covenant is God's solemn pledge to fulfill his promises to those included in the covenant. Third point, covenant is a word for a legal contract or covenant or compact. It is a legal document. So you're going to have two parties, party of the first part, party of the second part. Now, fourth observation is that a contract can be between two parties of equal stature or of one person who's superior and the other is inferior. And what we have in the biblical covenants is that God is the party of the first part and he's superior and he willingly binds himself. He doesn't have to as the creator. He doesn't have to do it that way at all. But he set up this this, this whole um, legal thing is integral and integrated into every aspect of, of creation, every aspect of God's dealing with man, our salvation, our sin, our eternal punishment, everything stated in legal terms. So the contract, these contracts, the biblical covenants, are always between a God who is superior and man who is inferior. Now, the Old Testament word is berit, B-E-R-I-T, and that just means a contract or a covenant. But when you get into the Greek, there's a couple of different words. The most common Greek word for a covenant was suntheke. The word that we have in the New Testament is diatheke. Suntheke had the idea, though, of it communicated that it was equal partners, that S-U-N is with and it has the idea of equality. So the, the rabbis who translated the Old Testament into, into Greek didn't like that word, so they used the word diatheke because it has more of the idea of a unilateral enactment, 
where a superior was giving something or dedicating something or willing something, that's the idea of a, of a will or a testament, to an inferior person. It's even used for a covenant by classical authors such as Aristophanes, going back to classical Greek. So it has a rich heritage, and that's, that's the point, is that they chose a word that specifically emphasized the kind of covenant where a superior entered into a legal contract with an inferior. Okay, the sixth point, <clears throat> though covenants have often been categorized as unconditional and conditional, and that's how you've heard it for most of your life, that's how I've heard it for most of li- my life, this is this leads us into some traps because there are some conditions in unconditional covenants. For As I've stated already, Abraham's descendants don't really get to enjoy the full breadth and depth of the land and the blessing of the covenant if they're disobedient. But God's not going to renege on the covenant with Abraham, and the, the generation that does enjoy that will be a generation that is 100% obedient. How that happened? Because of the new covenant. And so when the new covenant's enacted, that's going to bring about a radical change with Israel, as we'll see. Seventh point. The new covenant is the third permanent covenant with Israel that's based on the Abrahamic covenant. The three parts of the Abrahamic covenant are land, seed, and blessing. The land part is expanded in the land covenant, Deuteronomy 30. The, the seed portion is expanded in the Davidic covenant, 2 Samuel 7. And the blessing aspect is expanded in the new covenant. And the, the blessing was that God commanded Abraham, be a blessing to everyone. Those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. So what God is doing is he is saying, I'm party of the first part. Abraham, you're party of the second part. And as a result of this legally binding contract that I'm restricting myself to and granting to you, because it fit the format of a royal grant in the Old Testament, on the basis of this legal document, I'm going to bless all these Gentile folks over here who don't deserve anything. But if they're good to you, I'll bless them. If they're not, I won't. If they treat you well... How does this work out in history? If they have respect for Abraham and his descendants, they will trust Christ as their Savior. They'll have, and also have respect for Israel. If they don't, if they treat, literally, that curse clause says, those who treat you lightly. It's two different words there. In English, it says, those who curse you, I will curse. In English, you have the same word. In Hebrew, you have two different words. And the first word is a, it has more the idea of treating lightly, despising, just just treating casually. If, if, if they treat you lightly or despise you, I will curse them harshly. And that comes down to someone who just treats Christianity and Jesus Christ in a somewhat frivolous manner. God says that he will curse them in a harsh manner, eternal condemnation. So the new covenant is on that model. And I'll say this again and again because you've heard it the wrong way for a long time, is that when God enters into this covenant, it's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. You can't come in and say, well, that really means a church. It's with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, just like he made the Abrahamic covenant with Abraham. But what he's saying is, on the basis of this covenant, this legal contract I'm making with Israel and Judah, I will bless soteriologically 
all the Gentiles, and that's where the church comes in. So you don't have uh, two new covenants. Eighth point, <clears throat> the new covenant is an unconditional covenant, meaning that the fulfillment of its promises does not depend on the obedience or the will of Israel. Although in time, the covenant will be, uh, in, in time that is eventually, the covenant will be the cause. The new covenant will be the cause of their obedience, and we'll get into what that means when we get into the Ezekiel passages. What I'm saying here is that God promises to give them a new heart and to put the word of God in their soul, and under the new covenant, there are principles there that no one will need to teach their neighbor the word, no one will need to give the gospel because everyone will know it. I mean, it just, it just, it's different. God is not only going to die for them, he's going to, he's going to put it in their soul for them. He will uh, regenerate them. And there are some issues there that we have to discuss that uh, I think some people aren't real clear on, but we'll wor- work our way through some of those things. But it's, again, the emphasis is God's the one who's going to do the work for them, not, it's not based on, on, on their own native ability. Ninth point. Whereas most of the other covenants are material and national in nature. And I've talked about that before, how they're very physical in their blessings, uh, very physical. It's a land covenant, uh, very, very physical. It's the seed, it's the descendants. The new covenant is primarily spiritual. I will give them a new heart. I will put the word in them. I will give them the spirit. I will sprinkle water on them and they will be cleansed. It is a... Uh, it is a spiritual factor. Tenth, the new covenant is everlasting in nature. It is a permanent covenant, especially in contrast to the old covenant, which is a temporary covenant. So those are just ten points to kind of give you a little bit of a summary and orientation in our introduction to the new test to the uh, to the new covenant. Now let's look at some basic elements related to the new covenant itself. First of all, Scripture. Now, that's a lot of Scripture, and I want everybody to get that written down because I'm going to go to the next slide in 30 seconds, so just get writer's cramp. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is your key passage. That's the only passage in the Old Testament that uses the term New Covenant. This is the passage, word for word, that the writer of Hebrews quotes verbatim in Hebrews chapter 8. Starting in verse, uh, starting in verse seven. And that's all he does. He quotes the whole thing from verse, uh, excuse me, verse eight. From eight eight down to eight twelve, he quotes Jeremiah. But he doesn't expound on everything that's in here. He doesn't develop everything. He hardly develops anything that's in here. He doesn't talk about anything here. He says, he says, uh, for if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second, because finding fault with them, he says, and then he starts the quote in verse 8, and he quotes the whole passage down to verse 13, and then he draws, makes his point. And in verse 13 he says, in that he says a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. See what he's done? He's only focused on one thing. See, he, he quotes, he has five verses there. He says, see, he used the word new. Because he used the word new, that means that the old was temporary. He only focuses on that one word. 
But we're going to focus on more because we need to talk about the and understand the New Covenant. So the key passage in the Old Testament is Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. But that's not the first time chronologically that there's an indication that God is going to give Israel a better covenant. It is referenced in a number of other passages in the prophets. You have Isaiah 49, 8, Isaiah 54, 10, Isaiah 55, 3, Isaiah 59, 21, Isaiah 61, 8 through 9. We have Jeremiah 32, 37 to 41, Jeremiah 32, 39 to 40, Ezekiel eleven nineteen, Ezekiel sixteen sixty to sixty three, Ezekiel eighteen thirty one, Ezekiel thirty four twenty five, Ezekiel thirty six twenty five to twenty eight, Ezekiel thirty seven twenty one to twenty eight, Hosea two seventeen to twenty, and Amos nine thirteen through fifteen. Probably the oldest passage there is Hosea two. In chronological order, you have the Hosea 2, 17 to 20, then Isaiah passages, and then Jeremiah, uh, then Ezekiel and then Amos. So these are, um, <clears throat> these are the key passages, and, and several of those we're going to go through in detail. We're just doing a flyover tonight. Second thing is who are the persons involved? Well, it's very clear in both the Jeremiah 31 passage and the Hebrews passage. It doesn't change the wording at all. God says, when I will make my make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. I didn't hear with the church in there. I didn't hear Peter. I didn't hear Paul. I didn't hear John. It's with the, the, the house of Israel and the house of Judah. See, the importance. The importance is that this new covenant provides for the regeneration of Israel in the millennial kingdom, Plug in. Well, somehow my electrical cords got all screwed up and my power is about to go. Somebody back there can run up here and undo this mare's nest for me. I'd appreciate it while I continue to teach. Otherwise, we'll be out of, out of gas here in about two seconds. Okay, importance, provides for the regeneration of Israel and fulfillment of all other covenants and promises to them. Part of the new covenant secures them in the land. So it's not just isolated to that spiritual regeneration. Just pull, pull it out. Not, don't worry about running it up through there. Just pull it out and plug it in. Um, so it's going to provide for all these things. It's the culmination of everything that's been going on. Thank you, Jack. It's a culmination of everything that's been going on from the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12. It all points to that. And when that new covenant is enacted in, in, uh, at the return of Christ, the beginning of the millennial kingdom, that's when all these promises, all these prophecies, everything finally come to fulfillment in relationship to Israel. Provisions. There are ten provisions in the Abraham, I mean, in the a new covenant, ten provisions which reinforce a unique state of salvation for the nation Israel in the millennial kingdom. And some of these provisions sound a little odd to us because that's that's because we're in a different dispensation. So, 
things are going to change. And we just have to deal, we may not understand all of it or why it works the way it does, but this is how God is bringing about the conclusion to his promises to Israel. So, start off, the provisions of the new covenant. Number one, the covenant is made with the nation of Israel, according to Jeremiah 50, verses 4 through 5. It is not with anybody else. I keep hitting on that because even among dispensationalists in earlier generations, they thought, well, we've got to figure out how there's a new, where the church fits in. So they proposed a second new covenant called New Covenant to the Church. But we have to deal with the text and what the Scriptures say, and there's no place where the Scripture says there's a New Covenant with the Church. That was a theological deduction. Scratch that. That was a theological speculation to try to figure out how to resolve the problem, and it just didn't work. See, there's a lot of things that we can do. You, you, every now and then you, I, I run into people who start overthinking doctrine, and they, they start getting into what sounds very logical and very consistent, but somehow they sort of slip their anchor to the text. And you always have to, no matter how far up you go in developing your, your inferences and your conclusions and your um, uh, deductions from Scripture, you always have to be able to trace that line back down to where it anchors in the text. And if you can't do that, then you you just need to avoid that. God has clearly revealed everything he wants us to know, but there are some things he has not thought necessary for us to know. Now, I think that God wants us to know a lot more than most people think God wants us to know because they just sort of scratch the surface, and God wants us to think profoundly about what the text says and what its implications are. And a lot of people are really afraid to do that. They just want to stay right at, a, at, 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 at obvious um, conclusions, and we need to put things together. Now, we've done that in church history. We've put together passages that talk about Jesus is God, that Jesus is eternal, and that the Father is eternal, and that Jesus and the Father are one, So, and that the Holy Spirit is fully divine, and the Holy Spirit is eternal. So the conclusion must be that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are co-equal and co-eternal, and we have a uh, multiple-person trinity, triune God, with the same essence, the same nature. But you don't have the word Trinity anywhere in the Bible. You don't have the doctrine of the Trinity laid out that specifically anywhere in the Bible. But it's a deduction from propositions that are clearly stated in the Scripture. And if one proposition is true and another proposition is true, and you can draw a a deduction from those two propositions, a deduction will be true. That's logic. But there are some people who are just skittish about that. And if you have... Uh, proposition A and proposition B and you reach conclusion C and then you have proposition D and proposition E and you reach conclusion F and A and B and D and E are all true and C and F are true, then if proposition C is true and proposition F is true and that leads you to conclusion G, it's still true. And you can trace that line all the way back to the scripture and you can get Three feet off the Word of God going from deduction to deduction, but you better make sure that you don't... Once you start inserting some sort of speculative guesswork into that chain, you're hosed. 
So you have to make sure everything is clear and true all the way back down to the text. And that's what theology is, and that's why it's so much fun. Why we like to go to conferences and argue about stuff. Because it sharpens our thinking and helps us to get into the Word and really figure out what what the Bible is saying. So we have a covenant that's made with the nation of Israel. Second point, the covenant is in contrast to the Mosaic covenant, which depended on the obedience of Israel for its fulfillment, Jeremiah 31, uh, 32. If they were not completely obedient to the Mosaic covenant, they wouldn't enjoy the land, and they weren't, and they didn't. They never had complete control of the land. Third point, the major portion of the covenant, that is the new covenant, will be fulfilled, and I would rewrite that, uh, the covenant won't be fulfilled until after the tribulation. But there are aspects of it that are applied to the church. Let's say it that way. Aspects of it that will be applied to the church. Let's rewrite that. The, the, the covenant itself will be fulfilled after the great tribulation when Jesus uh, returns. Fourth point, the new covenant will take the place of the Mosaic covenant and will be written in their hearts instead of on tablets of stone. That's one of the differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. It says God will write it on the hearts of every Jew. He doesn't say every Jew that accepts Christ as Messiah because guess what? There's not a single Jew that enters into the Millennial Kingdom that isn't saved. And that's where it starts. Now, they're going to have children, and they're going to have, their children are going to have sin natures, and that's going to be a different issue. Fifth point, the new covenant will feature great spiritual blessings for the people of Israel. They will be head and shoulders above every other nation in the world, and all people and all nations, according to Isaiah chapter 2, are going to go to the temple and look to the temple in Israel and go to the temple mount for worship. Sixth point, the new covenant will reveal the glory of God so that it will no longer be necessary to witness to others. Pastor teachers will be unemployed. No one will need to teach their neighbor. That's related to Israel. Now, does that mean that out there among the Gentile nations you're going to have to have pastors? and Possibly. See, seventh point, the new covenant will feature forgiveness, Grace and blessing. See, there are some things that are very similar to today. It's very similar to the Old Testament. Every dispensation has certain things that are in common. Forgiveness, grace, blessing, salvation is always by faith alone in the object of faith for that dispensation. Eighth, in the covenant, God promised the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is where I think people get in trouble because there's going to be an indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant and there's an indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church age they conclude that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the church age must be part of the new covenant because, after all, Jesus said, this, blood is a, this is the new covenant by blood which is given for you. And Paul said, I'm a minister of the new covenant. So we, and that's what some folks conclude is that we live, we have some new covenant blessings today, but the operation of the Holy Spirit, even, even though he indwells in both dispensations, some of the operations of the Holy Spirit in the millennial kingdom are going to be different because you're going to have revelatory things happen. Your old men will dream dreams and your young men will see visions, and that's part of the new covenant. 
but that's not today, and that's linked to the Holy Spirit. So we have to make these kinds of distinctions. Ninth, there will be a universal knowledge of Yahweh among the people of Israel. Everyone will know him, Jeremiah 31, 34. And tenth, the covenant includes a promise that Israel will obey God and have a right attitude toward him forever. Those are the ten provisions of the of the new covenant. Now, let's look at four points for contrasting the old covenant and new covenant. First of all, God will write the law in their minds and on the hearts of those in the new covenant. That means they are going to inherently know it. We do not have any kind of truth that is inherently and intuitively known today. If you think so, you're a mystic. See, that's the contrast. And we don't have that today. But this is part of that danger. If you start thinking we've got new, some, some aspects of the New Covenant functioning today, then why don't we have this? And that does lead to... Uh, see, you get in a lot of charismatic theology, they think we're all... They've bought into this same kind of idea. Already not yet theology came along a little later, but they had the sort of an incipient form of this, that we're getting these New Covenant blessings, Joel 2 already. So when I wake up in the middle of the night with liver quiver... That's God talking to me. He's writing it on my heart. Second area of contrast, God will be the God of those in the new covenant, and they will be his people. There's going to be that, that final fulfillment of that intimate relationship between God and Israel. Those in the new covenant will know God automatically, intuitively, directly. i got a four in there. I should have only four. Didn't get that done right, did I? See, I'm no good with numbers. That should be one, two, three, and four, not one, two, four, and five. Five. Two basic characteristics. There's an internal spiritual transformation and a promise of a future regathering of Israel and restoration to the land. That's part of the new covenant. That Israel will be regathered and in the land as a regenerate people. Now, as we pointed out before, Isaiah 11, 11 and some other passages indicate that there will be a regathering of Israel in unbelief before the tribulation. And that just stands to reason if, the, if Daniel's 70th week, that, that seven-year period that's known as the Great Tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble, notice the emphasis on its relationship to Israel, if that begins when the prince of the people who is to come enters into a treaty with Israel, then there has to be a national entity in the land for him to enter into a contract with. Not only that, but halfway through, he's going to bring an end to sacrifices and offerings, which means that the people that are in the land are apostate, and not only because they're returned in unbelief, but because they're entering into a treaty with the Antichrist, but they're going to have uh, temple operations, sacrifices and offerings during that first three and a half years that end halfway through, and those sacrifices and offerings are just legalistic nonsense because it's part of an apostate, a reinstated apostate Judaistic worship that isn't in obedience to God. 
But there's got to be a national entity there. So sometimes people have said this was wrong to encourage or try to encourage. Let me tell you, you can encourage Jews to go back to the land all day long. And until God opened the door, they weren't going back. There were movements all through the last 2,000 years to try to give Jews an opportunity to return to, to their homeland. And none of them came to any fruition until starting in about 1835 to 1840, little doors started to open on the one hand. And on the other hand, since three-fourths of the Jewish population in the world lived in Eastern Europe and Russia, the Tsar began to uh, ratchet up the intensity of these pogroms and running Jews out of Russia they had to go somewhere. Isn't that interesting that just in the coincidence of God's plan, it just happened that the door opened to go to the land at the same time that God was kicking them out where they were. But that just, that was dispensationalists who were trying to manipulate the fulfillment of prophecy, don't you know? So the new covenant has these, these two aspects to it. Okay. In quick conclusion. Understanding the issues. There are two new covenants in, well, I'm not going to get into it. This is, this is the old thing, the, the, the position that there are two new covenants, one with the church, one with Israel. We have to figure out what's going on there. Second, the church. how does the church fit? I would say the church participates in the new covenant only by way of application. Oh, I don't know what this is. We don't want to get into this yet. Okay. I got... I didn't have the right heading on that. It's more than understanding the issues. What I want to do there is show the four positions on the New Covenant. There are four positions on the New Covenant. We'll get into that next time. Okay? Let's just bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to begin to look at this because we understand that as you announced a New Covenant, a better covenant, an everlasting covenant, in Hosea, in Isaiah, and then more specifically in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we realize that from at least seven or 800 years before Christ, you were working out this plan. This plan actually had existed in your thinking from eternity past. And that this is established at the cross, but it's not going to be enacted and fulfilled until Jesus returns. So through the lens of the new covenant, we get a panorama of your grace and how you continue to work out your plan, demonstrating your faithfulness to Israel. And just as you've always been faithful to Israel, you'll always be faithful to us. Your promises will never go unfulfilled or forgotten. Father, we thank you for what we learn in our study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.